Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Ecclesiastes, the gospel gives meaning. That's where we're going to be at this morning. We're continuing in our series. If you're wondering how to get to Ecclesiastes in your Bible, you can uh, flip it open to the middle and then hang a right, and it's two books over from there. We've been in the uh, book of Ecclesiastes for a few weeks now. We're almost uh, halfway through. This week, we will uh, cover a small section in chapter five, and then next week, we'll finish chapter five and all of chapter six as we look at worship. What we've looked at through Ecclesiastes and why we say the gospel gives meaning is that over and over again, the, the author and the writer, the preacher, who he reveals himself to uh, as in the book of Ecclesiastes, says this word over and over again, which is hevel in Hebrew, but it's vanity. So it's meaningless. And so we believe that the gospel gives meaning to a, a life that can seem meaningless. And for all of us in the room, we can say that we understand the toil of work. We can understand how life can seem mundane. We can see, uh, see how it can seem ordinary. And, and, we, and what we believe is that the gospel makes the ordinary stuff of life extraordinary. The relationship that we get to have with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so Christians, in a sense, as they go through this life uh, of, of hevel, of vanity, of ordinary stuff, can have a joy about them because of the meaning that they have through relationship with Jesus Christ. This evening, we are transitioning into uh, this section in, in chapter five of Ecclesiastes that's uh, uh, titled, Fear God. So it, it's, it's somewhat interesting. Why would the author, why would Solomon, why would he place this almost at the center of the book? Because it believe that at the center of wisdom literature and at the center of wisdom is this. What Proverbs 9 says is that the beginning of wisdom and knowledge is a fear of the Lord. Jake preached last week about uh, evil that goes on underneath the sun. And so typically what happens when we're in the midst of a crisis and turbulent situations, when our marriages are struggling, when things are falling apart, when people are sick, when there's a lot going on, our tendency is to turn and run to God. Literally, there's, that's times when people say, I'm starting to go to church again. I'm, I'm, I'm watching the way I do this. I'm doing this and, and I'm participating in certain things. I'm even considering a small group or something like that because in the end, we want something from God. So when evil is happening, sometimes the tendency is to turn to God. But as we turn to God, the preacher is giving us a real clear picture of who this God is that we're turning to. The other reason we believe that fearing God is a good thing is because we believe that God is the source of all knowledge and truth. And so if God is the source of all knowledge and truth, and it's, it, he is where we get our knowledge and truth from, one indicator that you can know that you are actually seeing and beholding the true God of the universe is if that knowledge that's revealed to you starts to produce a fear. So is this God who is grand, majestic, infinite, immutable, starts to reveal himself, when that God reveals himself, fear is produced. And oftentimes we just like to take fear and, and, and look at it, that it means like all respect, but it doesn't. When people come in contact with God in the Bible, or when someone, uh, even with someone who's been in, in the presence of God, they are struck with fear. Oftentimes they hit their knees. So no, it's not just this level of respect that you have. It's this, it's this grand fear. So is this God who reveals himself, is, is, is revealing himself to us one way that we can know that we are having a clear understanding of God is through fear. Do we fear him? And this is a good thing. It's not actually a bad thing to fear God. It's actually a good thing. It produces awe and it produces worship. And so what we're going to look at this evening is worship. So what I would say is that we worship God 
through complete sacrifice. We worship God through complete sacrifice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you so much that you speak to us and that you want to speak to us this evening. You want us to hear from you and you revealed yourself to us through your word. Father, I pray you would give us an accurate knowledge and an accurate understanding of who you are. Anything that we fashioned in our own minds or try to create that is not accurate to who you are, we pray you would uh, uh, just take that away. Make our thoughts accurate of you. Make the gospel big and grand and, and let it be good news this evening. If it's grown, if, if the gospel in any way has grown boring to any of us, we pray you would blow us away by who you are and Jesus, what you've done. Speak to us through your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We, we live in a world that understands sacrifice. We live in a world that understands a lot of sacrifice. The problem is, is that we're called to sacrifice with so many things. And so even for young kids after baseball games, as soon as the baseball game is over, what are you told to do after the, after the baseball game? Win or lose, you're called to go over and, and slap hands with the other team and, and in a sense, go tell them good job. That's a sacrifice to make that even sometimes, I remember playing baseball, you don't really want to do because you just got beat, but we're, we're, we're told to do these things. As you grow up and as you get married, you realize that in marriage, you make a lot of sacrifices as well. And one way you can test to see if something is a true and a complete, a pure or a perfect sacrifice is, are you doing it to get something in return? Are you doing it for gain? I remember when I was younger, there was uh, an athlete that I looked up to a lot and he would come into the place that I would work. And I knew that he, he was constantly asking me to do stuff for him for uh, his account because I worked in sales. And so I was doing stuff for his account because I had so much uh, uh, just respect for him. But I knew that he was using me, but I was okay with being used just because I wanted him to like me and I wanted a relationship with him. But what I realized is that he wasn't doing any of this stuff for like a true sacrifice. He wasn't making any of these sacrifices. He wasn't spending time. He wasn't doing any of this stuff because he really wanted a relationship with me. He just wanted to use me. And I think the, the more that we actually start to see sacrifices that are done without a pure heart or without a good intention behind it actually are pretty ugly. And I will be super honest to say this, that in the context of my marriage, that I sacrifice often and I tally my sacrifices like crazy. So I am horribly awesome at keeping track of all the awesome stuff that I do and then making sure that my wife knows that anytime that we get in an argument to present those things before her and to say, these are sacrifices that I've made. So in, 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 in all lessons, they're not sacrifices that are done in a complete, pure, perfect fashion. So... Let's look at what the preacher says here, starting in chapter five, verse one. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Guard your steps. Notice he doesn't say, watch your steps. Look closely at your steps. He says, guard. This is big language. He says, guard your steps. This would bring something to mind to the Israelites who heard this. They would have thought of the story of Uzzah, who was killed because he touched the Ark of the Covenant when it fell on the ground because he thought that somehow his hands were, were cleaner than the dirt of the ground that it had fallen upon. This would remind them of the story of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus who went into the, uh, into the presence of God in an unworthy manner and they were consumed. So when the preacher says, guard your steps, this is not like something to take lightly. This is not just a, uh, just be careful, maybe watch out. This is like a soldier in war saying, guard your every step because the next step might be on an IED. 
This is like a mom that's holding a baby that's on rocky ground. And it's like, guard your every step so you don't fall and your baby doesn't fall with you. He's saying, guard your step when you go to the house of God. Many of us go to a worship service. Many of us came in here tonight, but not many of us think about the actions that we take. So what is he doing? He's calling us to pay attention to the actions that we do. Guard your steps. Pay attention to what you're doing. Pay attention to why you're doing it. It's strong language. And he wants us to start wrestling with our actions. But what he really wants us to do is start wrestling with the heart of why we're doing stuff. Many of us just came in here this morning flippantly. And he's saying, don't be flippant. When you go to the house of God, he's saying, make sure you guard your steps. Make sure you check what you're doing. When you go into the presence of God, this, the author who wrote this is the same author who built the temple. So this is probably written at uh, the later part of his life, which means the temple was probably built. And the temple then was the dwelling place of God. So he's saying, hey, when you go up to God and when you go up to his presence and to the temple, he says, guard your steps. In other words, you better watch out and, and, and have a fear and an intense reverence for God. That's how he starts this off with this language. Why is this a good wake-up call? Why is this a good reminder to us? Because for many of us that live in the 21st century is worship services can oftentimes be more about the worshipers than, than about who we're worshiping. And then therefore we step into the place like this and we step into it with, how can this be the best possible experience for me? And he's saying, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And then he says here, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know that they are doing evil. So he says that, listen, actually, when you go up to the temple, when you go up to the house of God, it's actually better to listen. It's actually better just to receive than it is to do something. And I think our problem with worship is this, is anytime we say the word worship, we automatically instantly think of something that we do. So when I worship, it's going to be singing. It's going to be something that I present to God. It's going to be something that I give to God. But here, worshiping is listening. Worship is receiving. So he says, it's better to listen than to offer the sacrifice of fools. What does he mean by that? I think first we need to understand this. The reason that the, the, that the preached word of God is central to a service is because we show up here on Sunday evenings. We, we show up to church. Why? To listen and receive what the word of God has for us. To let it bring and bear weight on our lives. That's why it's central. So it's better to show up and listen. It's better to show up to listen than to just start doing stuff and, and, and offering a bunch, uh, up a bunch of stuff and saying a bunch of stuff. What he's saying is pay attention to your heart. Because sometimes we just show up and we just walk into God's presence and we start, start spouting stuff and we haven't even remembered whose presence that we are in. I will be honest, this is a very passionate subject for me that I'm preaching on tonight. So just know you'll, you're going to be met with passion. I think the call for Christians when we read something like this is to slow down and actually start to remember is what he's telling us who God is. It's better for us to start to remember that worship is not merely something we do, but it's actually something we receive. How do I know that? Cause Ephesians two, eight tells us that we we've, we've received, received a gift of God's grace. Romans five tells us that Hebrews 12 tells us over and over and over. Our Bible tells us that, 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 that the gift of God and the good news of the gospel is not that we do something, it's that we receive something. So we can actually glorify God by receiving something. We can worship God by receiving something. We're so tempted to believe that, that all of our words and all that we do are the things that make us right with God. This reminds me of something. Several years ago, I was in a cohort 
uh, provided by Acts 29. Uh, and our, our, our cohort was, I think it was around 10 people. And, and there were some uh, phenomenal men in there, some older men and some guys in there who had been pastors for a long time. And it was, it was, it was great. But there was one guy in there who never, he had figured, by his early 20s, he had figured out everything in life besides how to shut up. That's just the truth. And so he never stopped talking. And so when we had breakouts, I was like, man, we get such an awesome opportunity here to, to get to hear from some of these other pastors who've been in ministry forever, but we did not. Not with him there. Because <laughs> he never stopped. Honestly, when I think about him, I develop a little bit of a twitch. But this went on for a while. And then it dawned on me, I'm like, this, this in a sense of what it's like to offer, uh, to offer the sacrifice of fools is that he doesn't realize that he's actually robbing himself from just slowing down and listening and learning from other people. The only thing he knows how to do is just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk instead of just stopping and listening and receiving. And I think that's what it looks like to offer the sacrifice of fools. It's not a complete worship. It's the sacrifice of fools. Notice what he says here in verse 2. Again, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Pay attention right here. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. The call that, that, that the preacher is calling us to is to remember who God is and who we are as little humans. To remember how big and how grand and how glorious God is and to remember who we are. It is a call to remember it is a call to remember that at the end of our lives, our bodies will fit inside of a, of a six-foot box, inside of a six-foot hole. But yet we can't put God inside of anything because he's literally upholding the entire universe. It's a call for us to remember that we have a God who's infinite in knowledge, yet we've only explored like 5% of our ocean and we can't even figure out how bees fly. But yet we challenge God on what he's doing. It's a call for us to remember our failures, that we fail to meet the commands that God has given every day, but yet he keeps air in our lungs. We constantly live in a state of rebellion against God, but yet he is the landowner of the entire earth and of the entire world. And what other landowner would allow you to abuse his resources, to abuse him and let you live on his land? One of sheer grace. It's a call to start to remember, to remember who God is, where he is at and where we are, because we oftentimes forget that. We can't, like I said, go one day without rebelling against him. It's a call for us to remember how holy God is, that he is an all-consuming fire. And in the book of Leviticus, when you go there and you read that and you go, man, there's a lot of laws here. There's a lot of laws around purification. Yes, because God is so holy and we're called to remember that. And what you see is this holy God is doing everything possible so he can have a relationship with his creation. So what you see is God is taking all these steps and going through all this stuff so he can have a relationship with mankind. We're called to remember and see God's holiness that he is an all-consuming fire. Fire is not a bad thing, but if you don't deal with fire appropriately, it will consume you. It will burn you. We're called to respect fire, and God reveals himself as an all-consuming fire. If you get burnt out by the fire, is that God's fault? No, it is not God's fault. It's our fault for not appropriately understanding who God is and to think that we are somehow like him or we are somewhat close to him or we can somehow make our way up to him. God owes mankind nothing, but we live our lives as though God owes us the everything he's given us. When something goes wrong in our lives, we complain about it, but we never give praise for all the things that go right in the air that's in our lungs every single day. 
but we are quick to point out when things go wrong. I'll say this, and this is why I'm passionate about this, is that our problem is not that we think too little of ourselves. I believe our problem nowadays is that we think too little about God. And that what we've done is the same thing the Israelites have done. What they did is when they decided uh, that they wanted to fashion together a God is they made a really cute golden cuddly calf that they could hold in their hands that they could pass around with one another. And oftentimes what we want to do is we want to make a cute, comfortable, cozy God that's very safe for us. But when the God of the Israelites shows up in the Old Testament, they cry out with fear and his glory in that moment is even shrouded. He doesn't show up in his full presence and they cry out with fear. They're like, we don't want to go up there. Moses, you go up there. When the God of the universe shows up, he's not a God you can pass around that's a cute golden calf. He's a God that instills this deep fear inside of the Israelites because he is an all-consuming fire. I think that we need to make much of God and Faithful biblical preaching is this, is not trying to bring God down to our level, but it's putting him on a level that is unreachable. It is making God so out of our reach and so out of our level that we cannot get to him. He's unattainable. And the reason why this is good is because if grace or the gospel has become boring to you, I'm going to guess and maybe bet that it's because God has become small to you and he's come down to your own level. But when God is out of reach and, 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 and he's big and he's grand and he's glorious, we remember who he is and we remember who we are, then we realize that we can't bridge this gap ourselves. We have a huge problem. The gospel is only good news if there's really bad news. The gospel is good news if there's a really big problem. Hollywood knows this. Hollywood capitalizes off this. Think about all of your favorite movies, action movies, fairy tales, you name it. In an action movie, no one backs up near a cliff and gets like 200 feet from the edge and a guy grabs him and rescues him and pulls him in. And the guy goes, thanks a lot, man. Another 200 feet and I was a goner. No one does that because they'd be like, that was the boringest action movie we've ever seen. What happens? The guy falls off the cliff and he's falling. He's plummeting to his death. And you think there's, it's hopeless for him. There's no way he can rescue himself. And in the very last minute, a superhero swoops in and saves him. And we go, and we breathe a sigh of relief. Hollywood understands that when you have a big problem, Christ is going to get big when you see him step inside of that. Same thing with fairy tales. I was watching Tangled today with our daughters. Like She wasn't in a castle for three days. She was in there for 18 years. That's a big problem. And so when, when, when she showed up and when she's rescued, the rescue is so much bigger because you have this really big problem. And I, I think that we need to pay attention to this because if we say that this doesn't happen, that scares me because this happens and it happens inside of evangelical Christianity. In fact, in one of the largest churches inside of the U.S., a comment was recently made by a pastor's wife as she stood in the pulpit. I will not say names. But she said, go, don't go to, you can YouTube this, you, you want it. It's actually titled Do Good for Yourself. But she said, don't go to church. We don't go to church to worship God. We go to church because it makes us feel good about ourselves and God wants us to feel good about ourselves. It's a reversal of the Westminster Catechism that states this, the question is, what is the chief in a man? That was the question asked, what's the chief in a man? It's to glorify God by enjoying him forever. What did they make it? That God glorifies us by enjoying us forever. 
And so our call here is to remember when he says, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your hearts be hasty or utter word before God. For God is in heaven, you are earth. It, it, is, it is a call to remember who God is. And unless we appropriately understand who God is, then our worship for God is in a sense going to be small because what we think oftentimes is that we were all stars or that we Christians are the people that just needed a little bit of tweaking. And so that's why God selected us because we were like almost there. And so he could just get us there easier. Or we were kind of like all-stars that he wanted on our, on our team. And we know this because sometimes we use language like, man, I wish Ben would get saved because he'd be such an awesome Christian. And what we think is such a high level of someone that they're like so close, but the, real, the realization is, is the gap is so far of how, mo- how much we've missed the mark. Grace is not amazing because you are. Grace is amazing because God is. Plain and simple. Again, he says, be not, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Don't just run in the presence of God, forgetting whose presence you're in and how holy and powerful and majestic God is. Look here, verse two. For God is in heaven, you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. What does this mean? That again, we can put so much confidence into the many words that we pray and the many words that we say into what we are able to convey. Why would he say dreams? Because oftentimes the dreamer only knows how to worship God through big dreams of grandiose and not through the small faithful task of everyday life. And so with big dreams comes lots of busyness, but that doesn't mean that's pure and complete worship before God. It just means that you're busy dreaming up dreams and that's how you think you can worship God. What does it mean for lots of words again? Here's what it means. Our confidence cannot be in our words. Our confidence cannot be in what we can present and, 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 and give to God through our words. How does this play out for our lives? Here's how it plays out, even in prayer life, is that sometimes we put our, our, our confidence in, in some of us that pray uh, King James type prayers with those types of words, bigger words. Some of us pray daddy or Abba, and we think that somehow that is what secures us. Some, some, sometimes we look at our methods or uh, our, whether we're kneeling, whether we're standing, wherever we're at. And so what we start doing is we start putting, do you, do you see this? We start putting all of our trust and all of our confidence in our words and in our methods, how we say things and how we present things. And then what we're doing is we're putting our confidence in our words and in ourselves. I don't think it's wrong to say daddy or Abba. I pray like that myself. I don't think it's wrong to have a structured prayer. I think it's bad when we start putting our faith and our confidence in the words and with many words. How do I know this? Because in the New Testament, who gets praised? Who gets praised? When the two men are sitting outside of the temple, one doesn't even hardly go up near the temple. What does he do? He bows his head and he beats his chest and declares what sort of sinner he is and for God to have mercy on him. And what does the other guy do? He has lofty prayers. Thanks God that he's nothing like this man, that he wouldn't do the things this man does, that he's nothing like this man. He has big prayers. And Jesus even tells people, don't pray like the Pharisees pray with these big, long prayers. Martha, she ran around. She was a busybody. Who was praised? Mary for sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening and receiving. I think sometimes it's good for us to know that sometimes the most meaningful prayer that we can offer God is a thank you. But a grateful thank you versus saying a lot of big fancy words instead of actually just saying thank you, but meaning it. 
Look at verse four. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. What he's saying is actually just pretty simple and straightforward. It's that whatever you say, do it. Jesus even says this, let your yeses be yeses and your noes noes. Do not make a vow to God. Do, do not make promises to God. How does this play out in our lives? Here's what this looks like. Without showing your hands, how many of us, when something has happened in our life, and uh, consciously or subconsciously, we've, we've made a vow to God that, God, if you get me through this, God, if you get me out of this, God, if you can deal with this in my life, then I will start doing this. I literally know people and I've had friends that have told me because they wanted a child so bad that he was starting to read his Bible and stop cussing because he wanted God to give him a child. I, I know this is a thing and I know this is a thing for our church because people disappear for a long times until things fall apart in their life and they come back in because in a sense you're making a vow to God that God, I'm coming back to you and if you can get my life back in order, that would be great and I would appreciate that. But in a sense, what you're starting to offer is not complete pure sacrifice and worship to God through that kind of sacrifice. What you're actually doing is saying, God, I have another source of happiness and if you could get me there, I would really appreciate it. And so you are the vehicle, you're the means that can get me to this other source of happiness. Can you make that happen for me? And he's saying here, don't throw out empty words. If you make a vow to God, if you say you're going to do something, then do something. He's saying offer true and pure and perfect sacrifice to God. Don't just offer something to offer it. You know that God literally doesn't need anything from us? Like he's not made complete or sufficient or full or whole or satisfied by anything we have to offer. Literally anything. So what is he saying? If you go back to verse 1 again, that God's looking at the heart, and that's what he desires. God desires a heart. It's been interesting as a parent, because we put our kids in time out, and what we want and what we would like is for our kids to say sorry from a heart that actually means it, but you actually get to see in young kids what, what, what religiosity looks like because they will start to do things or check boxes or make sacrifices or say sorry just because they know that in the end it'll get them what they want. So it's not actually done through something pure. And my wife recently, she was like, I, th- I say we leave them in the room until they come out with like, and, and they're really ready from like a heart to say they're sorry for what they did. And, and it's like, I think that's, that'd be great. The problem is, is that our kids would probably be in the room forever, you know? And, and so like we could wait for them to do that. But, but, but oftentimes, Our kids offer us empty words. And I think it's a reflection of what oftentimes we do to God is we make empty promises and and we offer empty words and we don't come to him with a pure and complete form of worship. Do this with me because I think this will help make sense of this passage and the importance of it. I don't believe this passage is primarily talking to rogue, rebellious non-Christians. I think it applies to both. I believe this is talking to the spiritual Israelites. I think this is talking to the people of God. I think this is talking and it is a passage for Christians to read to be a massive wake-up call and to pay close attention to the things you're doing. Turn with me uh, to Matthew 7 in your Bibles. Just hang a right and keep going till you get to the New Testament and the first gospel there is Matthew. And look at chapter 7 with me. Matthew 
I believe what the preacher is doing is he's saying, look, in, in, in the midst of a world with evil and suffering, in the midst of a world where you're going to go through a lot of toil and pain and hardships, you will naturally turn to God. But make sure you remember who the God is that you're turning to. And then make sure whatever you offer is a complete form of worship and of sacrifice. This, this reminds me of, of, the, of the scariest passage to me in our entire Bible. Nothing scares me more than this passage. Matthew 7, 21. And I believe this is what the preacher is getting at. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. We know in Hebrew, anytime you say a word twice, there, 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 there is deeper meaning of knowledge of someone. David says this to his son, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. So there is a knowledge of God. They say, Lord, Lord. And then look here. Do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them the scariest words in the whole Bible. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This passage in Ecclesiastes 5 is about a fear and a reverence of God, a remembering, but it's talking about a sacrifice through worship. This passage in Matthew is also talking about sacrifice and worshiping through sacrifice. The reason why this scares me is because 10 years ago, I would have, I, I, I would have answered a passage like this. If God, if I stood before God in heaven and, and, and I stood there with like five or 10 other people, you know what I would do, honestly? is I would start thinking something like this. If God was like, hey, I'm getting ready to hand out a award or I'm getting ready to bring some of you into my kingdom, I would, I would automatically start thinking, well, that's obviously me. That's, where I, that's what I would think. And then I would start to think this. I would forget who God is and who I am, but what I would start to do is I would go, I, I know that my, there's no way this, their devotional life matches up to mine. There's no way that I've watched this guy and I'm way more mature than him. I know he cusses, I know he does this, I know he got drunk last night. And so what I would start doing is, is start sizing up everyone to my left and my right, completely unfocused on my relationship with God. And then, and then when asked by God what I have to offer, I would, I, would, I would say, well, I take communion by myself every day. I have an incredible devotional life, much better than probably most of these people. I'm probably more spiritual. I don't talk like they do. I don't say stuff like they do. And then what I would do is I would come with hands filled up like this with the complete sacrifice of everything Rick Reeves has done. That's what they did here. And what does God say? Depart from you, worker of lawlessness. I never knew you. I would be utterly shocked if when God said, at this moment, I'd like to call so-and-so forward. And I was like, that guy? No way. That's what I would think. And, and, and 10 years ago, that's what I would have thought. And, and when I read a passage like this, I didn't think that it was applicable to me. I think for every Christian in the room, this should somewhat do something to us. If we read it interactively, if we slow down and read it, if we let it seek in, for people who say, Lord, Lord, they have a deep knowledge of God and they tell God of all the religious, spiritual, awesome stuff they've done. And then he says, I never knew you. Which means that somehow as a Christian, or if you view yourself as a Christian or someone who knows God, it seems like here, you can do a lot of stuff that look really spiritual that it just falls flat and empty. That's scary. That should scare us. It should wake us up. 
I think if you start to think that you're more mature than the people that you hang out with to your left and right, then again, you've taken the focus off of who God is and who you are and how much you need Jesus. We often fail to see how much we've missed the mark. Recently studying the book of Hebrews, and one of the most fascinating things to me in the book of Hebrews is what we'll close in on here today, is that in the book of Hebrews, there's a theme through there of perfection. But what actually perfection means is to bring a person or an act to completion. And taken from Leviticus 21.10, the technical term actually means this, to fill the hands. So perfection is to bring an act or a person to completion, and it literally means to fill the hands. So if you think about cupping your hands like this, it means to fill the hands with a complete or perfect sacrifice. That's what it means. And so here's the really, really, really good news. Is that what the gospel is, is this. Is that when we come to God, what we have to start to understand is this. Is that whatever I'm putting in my hands that that is a confidence in myself, what I need to do is go like this and shake it out. And, And I need to come with hands that are empty. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. When you understand who God is and who we are, you understand you cannot bridge that gap. Our worship has not been complete. Our worship has not been full. Our worship has has not been offered in a perfect sacrifice. Well, you understand this then about the gospel is this, is that literally God fills your hands with the sacrifice, the complete sacrifice of his son. So what we do as Christians is we receive what Christ has done on our behalf. And what he does is he fills up our hands with his perfect and complete sacrifice. So when we go to God, we don't offer God our stuff. What we go is we go literally giving God back what God has done through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. We don't offer to God our sins. We don't offer to God our obedient life. We don't offer to God our our good deeds or good works. What we go to God with and what we offer him are two empty hands that he has filled with the person and work of his son. And we say, here's what I have. It's complete and it's perfect. And it's what Jesus Christ has done on my behalf. I've received it and I'm giving it to you. Biblically, try to make sense of this through the book of Hebrews. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it. Therefore, let us be grateful. Notice the words here. For receiving a kingdom. We did not earn a kingdom. We received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For God is a, uh, an all-consuming fire. Your prayers, your worship, it is all acceptable to God only through faith in Jesus Christ. What do you do with something complete or perfect? What do you do with it? You can't make something complete or perfect more complete or more perfect. It's already complete. It's already perfect. What we do is we receive it. And then what we do is we live our lives out of it. We don't worship because something is lacking. We worship because everything is complete in what Jesus Christ has done. This massive gap between us and God is bridged. Because we come to God, not with anything of our own, but with the complete sacrifice of his son on our behalf. 
And to that, we sing our hearts out. To that, we live our lives. To that, we pray. To that, we do everything else out of that. But we do these things not to get something from God. We do these things because now, if everything's complete, we actually get to enjoy God. 